Hello and welcome to our viewers on cruxinvestor.com and also to our listeners on Cruxcast, our podcast series. We're talking to Dustin Garrow. He's a consultant with Nuclear Fuels Association. Hello, Dustin. How are you? Good, Matthew. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, feels like a long week already, but uh, I, I do appreciate you're up early there. So uh, thanks for joining us. Um, I just want to kind of set the scene here. You are, you know, you've been long in the uranium market. You live and breathe it. It's in your blood. Um, yes. And you're going to take, we're, we're taking advantage of you today to maybe help the listeners and followers of Crux Investor understand what's going on in the uranium market at the moment. Would you agree there's a general acceptance that the 232, which I think you helped draft, if I'm not mis mistaken, um, uh, you know, with uh, your energy and energy fuels, um, do you think that that has in itself frozen the market in terms of utilities are nervous about making any kind of decision until the outcome of that is known? Is that, would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. And yeah, just for the list, listeners' benefits, one of my uh, clients is Energy Fuels, yeah. which was one of the two petitioners. So I have a bit of confidentiality I have for to sure. deal with. I appreciate but, it. But yeah, the utilities, first of all, um, felt that uh, the administration was not likely to upset their uh, nuclear fuel uh, purchasing because some of their reactors are in uh, you know very difficult electricity markets mm. and any increase in costs uh, certainly is not something they would like to see. But yeah, you know, talking, I was at a big conference in Miami in April, mm. talked to a number of the fuel managers and they just said, you know, we really don't know the best course of action here. And, and a couple of them actually said, we really would like to get this behind us, whatever it is. I'd, I want to get onto that side of things, because I think, you know, the, the market has dis discussed at length 232 and, you know, what may or may not be in it, you know, uh, what may or may not come out of it. But I want you to talk to me about supply demand. So let's, let, if, we, if we may start with the utilities, these are a bunch of smart guys. They're actuaries in all but name. And they're trying to make decisions based on multiple criteria. Can you give us some sort of insight into that 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 decision making that they've got to go through in terms of that risk mitigation when they're buying? Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, keep in mind the nuclear fuel cycle, just by the nature of the industry, is quote long term. So, in other words, they have to buy fuel well in advance of when they will put it into their reactor because it has to go through various processing steps, be fabricated, gone, taken to the site. So you've got a pretty, you know, anywhere from a year to a year and a half, uh, but they really start that planning well in advance. And so, you know, the fuel managers with their risk management groups at the utilities are having to look well forward. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, they protect themselves usually through long-term contracts. What, what is long-term? What's, what's the term contract here? Okay, so what I would say one today. We did have a U.S. utility in the market not too long ago, uh, last night in 2018. They were looking for delivery starting in 2020. They would go through 2024, and then they always appreciate a year or two of extension option. 
So normally they're looking anywhere from two to three years out and then for maybe four or five years. It is interesting, just as a side note, the Eurotom Supply Agency just came out with their fuel report and they said the average contract for their utilities is not, was signed nine years ago. So keep in mind, these are very long-term planning horizons. And so when something like the 232 comes up, they, you know, the proposal is they buy 25% of their requirements from newly produced U.S. uranium. Yeah. So that's a fairly large chunk of their, well, of so their uranium requirements. So, so that's what's kind of frozen them, if you want. They wouldn't say that. Sure. But, you know, it's kind of hindered their planning because they don't know which road to take particularly for future longer term contracts not necessarily just spot buying right so so the utilities are they, they have a kind of a control on the spot price in in the sense that until they start buying people don't really know where they stand right so yeah. can you just give us a little bit more insight into the sorts of things that are going through their heads at the moment? You, I mean, you, you, you met with some of them in April. I guess you speak to them regularly. Um, it, it's you know, beyond 232, which is the American component to this. There's all of the you know, geographical mitigation of risk. They're not going to buy from one source. That, that would be problematic, I'm sure, or could be problematic, I'm sure. What are, the, what are the things that they're looking for in their contracts? You know, I guess if I have a specialty, it's long-term contracts. Yeah. And, you know, what they want is uh, diversity of supply. You know, they have to take that into account. And what does that mean? Other, what do you mean by diversity? What it means is uh, a geographic region, so then they're looking at uh, political risk. They're looking at transportation uh, issues, um, technologies. In other words, you can mine uranium underground mining uh, in fairly high risk environments like the Athabasca Basin, where they actually freeze the ore bodies or put in freeze curtains to hold uh, water back. And the other is in situ recovery where they drill well fields and so that's, you know, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, uh, conventional mines in, in Africa, mm. you know, the Namibia, Niger, uh, Australia. So it, it, uranium is mined, you know, globally. And it's not like some of the other fuels that if it's a coal source, then, you know, you're generally linked to something fairly close at hand. Uh, uranium and nuclear fuel is truly global. And so they have to take into account those sources and then as i said as they move into the fuel cycle to conversion enrichment of the uranium and fabrication mm -hmm. there's various facilities around the world so where do they contract um again under acceptable risk which then drives their for example strategic inventory you know if you're buying from a region that might be a bit more politically uh un unsettling uh, you might want to carry more inventory. So it, it's a pretty complex uh, uh, calculus they use. Now, when I started, the U.S. you guys, you usually bought from U.S. suppliers. Yeah. So it was kind of a lot more yeah, simple. See, now it's truly global. Yeah, so, absolutely. The, the kind of U.S. have kind of, you know, fallen by the wayside for, for whatever reason, for a multitude of different reasons. And we can get into where nuclear sits, because obviously uranium and nuclear sit side by side, and it's a very emotional, emotive subject 
uh, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, but just just sticking with the uh, utilities for just a little bit longer, if we may. So the the utilities are, I think, would be accepted to. It would be reasonable to say that they are controlling the spot price at the moment until they they know what's going on. Um, the spot price is driving the planning for the equities, the the, comp the public companies that are producing this stuff. And today it's at mid-20s, say. They need it to be 50 plus to be economic. So anything between where we are today and 50 is a moot point. It doesn't kind of shift the dial in any, in any way. So what's got to happen? What's going to happen? Is it just 232? No, I think 232 just was a, a complicating factor. In other words, the, the utilities were beginning to move into a an era. I won't get into the other parts of the fuel cycle, yeah. but their prices have been significantly depressed. Mm. So the utilities that we're looking as forward, uh, they're seeing higher prices. And so they're trying to come up with a, a good defensible strategy on how do you cover your future needs um, in the most economic and under reasonable risk parameters. Yeah. And it's not particularly uh, easy at this point. So again, 232 showed up and they said, well, this just kind of puts a little stop on what we're doing because a number of them were looking at longer term contracting and then 232 came in. With hindsight, would you have recommended to those two companies that they do submit the, the, the petition. Would you have done 232 with hindsight? As the producers? Yeah, I think what, well, I think as you're probably well aware, what was happening was these longer term contracts mm. at higher prices, the US utilities paid an average of $39 a pound last year for over 40 million pounds of deliveries in a $24 average spot market. So the, the longer term contracts, which are characterized as legacy, mm. were helping a lot of a number of the producers stay in business. But the utilities have been really hesitant to extend or even negotiate new long term contracts. Mm. And so particularly in the case of the US, uh, you were seeing the industry really uh, production last year was under a million and a half pounds this year going to be well under a million. And so the producers are really looking at, you know, a situation where trying to keep the, the lights on. And yeah. the other thing, quickly keep in mind, the 232 is national security. So in the case of the United States, the Department of Defense starts to play a role because whatever their future needs are have to be addressed by U.S. origin fuel. You cannot use any uranium conversion enrichment from right. any other country. So that bifurcation in the market, does that, would that, does that mean there's two sets of prices potentially is, is the solution? Uh, I mean, I think it depends on the volume. In other words, if it stays at the 25%, then it's going to be 10 to 12 million pounds a year. So it becomes a, you know, a fairly noticeable part. But if it's somehow smaller, yeah. President Trump say six to eight million pounds a year uh department of defense may start buying some where's the real cost in this you know you you know with weapons grade enriched uranium 90 percent enrichment 
where does the cost come? Is it at the uranium getting it out of the hole stage, or is it you know all in the enrichment phase? In which case, the uranium components again, it's, it's irrelevant, isn't it? It depends on what you're you're addressing. If it's commercial grade uranium for power, power reactors, yeah. one thing. Uranium is is sure. uh, a fairly significant part of that process. Now, if you go into the military side, then it's enrichment because right. you've got it from its natural well, state to a very high enrichment level. Right, right. That's, okay, nobody, that's, it's just, I, this kind of, and I do promise to the listeners yeah. that we're, we're going to get back to you know picking winners and winners and losers uh, in terms of. But I, I, I do want to talk about the strategy and who the winners are going to be with this this arena in which we're playing right now, which is this space before companies can manufacture, produce uranium profitably, okay? You've got countries, and you've got your friend um, Mark uh, at Energy Fuels, I think you know, he would argue that there's a geopolitical story going on here with Russia, with China, etc. And then there are obviously the public limited companies themselves, who each have their own business models and business drivers and, and needs. Um, and they're all global players. They're all certainly the producers and the ones with cash, they're global players. So who, who do you think is gonna win? First of all, can we talk about the China-Russia component? Okay, so what's going on there? We, we, we've got these SMRs, which people are um, you know, offering into places in Africa. We, we'll build it, we will run it, and we'll have long-term contracts with you. That helps countries like that. You've got all sorts of you know, um, PPP models. How are how are how is China and Russia making it difficult for America to get back onto the you know the the platform? Well, first of all, I, you know, let's talk about the Russian side, which mm. is again very complicated, very very long history. There's in fact the suspension agreement, which affected the amount of Russian nuclear fuel that could be imported to the U.S., which has been in place in various forms since 1992. Or three, and it's now being reviewed once again. Um, what we're seeing, though, I think, with China and Russia is some competition on a geopolitical front. In other words, they're very active in marketing export reactors. Now, to do that, as you point out, they not only provide the reactor itself, they provide the fuel, they take it away. So if you approach a country such as South Africa or Saudi Arabia. I know the Russians are talking to the Saudis right now. Mm -hmm. um, once you put a reactor somewhere, 60 to 80 year life. So it, it, it's an interesting geopolitical issue, which is quite complicated. But what happened with the Russians is they sold a lot of uranium after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And so right now, the myth, the one part that is a challenge to them is uranium. So that's why they're getting active again in Central Asia. They have their own uranium production. They have a proposed mine in Tanzania. Um, so the Russians, yeah, actually, I've heard uh, are, quote, short uranium for domestic uses, for export reactors. And uh, so they're being much more cautious on some of their sales, but they have a lot of enrichment capacity. Right. And so that's what they're selling into the U.S. So that's kind of the Russian 
story. Now, the Chinese is different. They've been stockpiling uranium to support their own program, but at times they do sell uh, into like the United States. But they've not, you know, been a big factor in the export market. They're producing in Namibia. They have domestic production. They have long-term contracts to buy mm. in Australia and Canada. Um, so they're really more in a stockpiling mode to support their really significant growth in reactor build. But right, okay. I mean, that, that that's that's a component. So you're you're saying there's there's a business component to this, but there's also this geopolitical component, which basically means control, especially with 60, 80 year contracts, you have control over that country's energy needs. And, and that's but, a problem. That's a problem for, for US companies, right? Yeah, I mean, the US companies, first of all, we had two, we had more, we had a number of reactor manufacturers back in the 70s and yeah, 80s. Westinghouse. And yeah. Officially General Electric, Hitachi, and Westinghouse, um, Toshiba, are still in the business. General Electric has kind of really wound down their reactor business. So we're left with Westinghouse, which is effectively controlled by the Japanese. So you, when you look at some of these projects, you know, the Russians and the Chinese will come in and not only do they offer the reactor and the ancillary services, they will finance it. Yeah. So they will provide the the, the necessary capital. So the U.S., you know, Westinghouse uh, has been at a real disadvantage in some of these countries. Now they've been successful in China and, you know, because China wanted some of all of the technologies. So they've done that. But yeah, you I mean, you need XM Bank financing. Um, so it, it's much more complicated where it's because Westinghouse is not a state-owned yeah. entity like the exports of Russia and China. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I think the it's a, you know it's a it's a all in solution. It's a you know one one package product. You go to the uh, whoever's running the country, and you say I I can give you whatever 20 percent of your energy needs like that. A big part of them, yes. Yeah. And I've heard that they'll just send a bill. Right. You know, we've produced X amount of energy. You pay your annual bill, and we take care of everything else. Yeah. So it's, it'd be attractive to some of the countries, the smaller countries in particular. I've seen that with hydroelectric in, in Asia as well. This same sort of package product it makes it a lot easier. You pay over a 40-year contract. Um, so is there some degree of frustration with the American uh, companies um, that countries like France or Germany or Australia kind of aren't towing the sort of traditional party line of, you know, we're going to side with the U.S. here. They, everyone's got their own business interests at heart here. Um, yeah. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily help in terms of the entente cordiale. <laughs> um, you know, and we, and we do see it in other areas, you know, obviously with what's going on in Iran at the moment as well. So there's, you know, America was a powerhouse. When, when they spoke, people listened. But do you think that's not happening anymore? Well, that's one of the topics that just it came up actually quite recently, that if you don't have a robust nuclear industry domestically, you really start to lose any leverage internationally 
if, if let's pick on South Korea, which was successful in getting a four reactor package at, in the Emirates, which they're now, the reactors are starting to come on, but they have a phase out program in South Korea. Now it will go for many decades, but it's just like Japanese exports of nuclear technology or equipment when you're in not a phase out, but let's just say they continue to um, struggle to bring on more reactors, you kind of lose that, that leverage where you've got the Russians and the Chinese, the French to a more limited degree doing export uh, reactors. Um, they've got a lot more say than if, well, you know, you know, we don't have we don't have the products or the services or but you know listen to what we we tell you so yeah yeah it's, it's I, I appreciate that it's, it's a difficult space and difficult time for some of the u.s um, players at the moment so if we may come on to the public companies the producers developers and explorers yeah. now uh, mining's a tough space full stop okay yes. but mining uranium you've got that added emotive content of because of the association with nuclear people in countries like Spain make things difficult for you know our, you know I won't mention names but we know who we're talking about um, you know and 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 all over the world where this nuclear component is slightly mis, mis, slightly misunderstood by some and yes. others will you know tell you that it's you know zero carbon and it's 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 the solution Bill Gates putting a, a, a billion bucks of his own money into this. So, you know, you know you, you've got polarizing views, I guess, is what I'm coming at. So how do the companies, who, the, main, the main players being Kazatom, Prom, uh, Cameco, and then a kind of handful of others in production, and then a bunch of explorers in the world. Let's not forget, this is mining, because we always forget, we get so excited about talking about uranium, we forget it's mining with its usual mining problems, finding it, digging it out of the ground economically, producing it, selling it in a market which may or may not be receptive to it in terms of spot price. So can we start with Kazatomprom and Cameco? Are they influencing or controlling price at the moment? Because Cameco is trying to find nine million pounds to fulfill orders for this year alone. You know, so what are they thinking? Actually much more than that. Yeah, I think that, you know, and first of all, let's focus on Cameco because yep. they are a Western company, very large producer, made up of two government organizations in the, in the long past. Um, you know, I think what happened there, you know, was certainly on the Cameco side, and it was a big surprise, I think, to the industry when they decided to put MacArthur River on care and maintenance, which was producing 18 million pounds a year in a 150, 160 million pound production scenario and say they're going to buy. And, you know, they've been very public to say we are trying to get the price up. Um, so are they manipulating? No, they're basically just saying we're going to retard available supply. And even better, because we have long term contract commitments, we're going to become a buyer in the market. Now, there is the uh, on the Kazakh side, there was a world nuclear fuel market meeting going on in Lisbon as we speak. And yesterday they made a presentation and part of the feedback I got was they said the price is too low. So, I mean, they're publicly stating the price is too low. 
they've cut back production, mm-hmm. you know, what they had planned to do. So yeah, these are two big producers that are attempting to, we don't like manipulate, no. uh, to try influence the price so they can you know stay in economic uh, production because right now um if you look at the spot price more than half the world production is uneconomic so you now fortunately for the utilities uh quite a bit of it is state-owned be it china be it you know as you know kazan and prom uh which is now kind of a a split between public and, and private so you know it's pretty clear prices have to be higher in order for these for production to go forward or restarts and certainly new mines which everyone pretty well recognizes need to be built there's no question you need new capacity as older mines like ranger in australia mm. rossing looks like it may get a bit more life because it's being purchased by the chinese but yeah, $25. That's why, again, most of the uh, producers have longer term contracts at much higher prices. Can I ask a question about this, Dustin? Because people want to draw parallels to the last uptick where companies like your former company, Paladin, just shot to the stars, you know, 10,000 times return kind of numbers being thrown around. Um, yes. But the thing that also happened back then was you went from you know broadly 50 companies to 500 companies yeah whereas that, that you know they, people got excited we're going to all have a uranium company um yes. but do you feel that this time because this this uh, pr- this dip in the price has gone on for you know so long do you think there's scope for certain players again we won't name names to go and buy up some of these better explorers slash developers some of the australian companies i'm thinking of with assets either in australia or africa or you know elsewhere there are some good projects which are quite short of cash but just hoping this thing change the market changes soon right so how do they survive do they go keep at trying to raise capital i know there's a bunch more uranium funds out there okay so that's the good news like yellow cake um but how do they keep going? How do they keep the lights on? Do they keep the lights on? Or do a couple of big guys come along and say, we'll just wrap things up now while, while times are tough for them because we know where the market's going? Yeah, I, I would like to think that some of the big mining companies would, would kind of reemerge and uh, come in and, and, as you say, sweep up some of these uh, good mines that may be suffering financially. What we're seeing, though, is actually the opposite. Right. The, uh, the big mining companies like Rio Tinto, that have been in this business 40 years, are now exiting totally. And I've not heard of any interest, no matter what they think of where the price is going, of coming back into uranium. BHP is a bit of a reluctant participant. But for those big, those are super, those are super companies. It's too big. This market is too small. Uranium market compared to gold, compared to iron ore, it's too small. They're, they're not going to do that. But there must be some mid-tiers with a bunch of cash thinking this could be interesting. Yes, but I think they look at the, uh, they've either looked at uranium in the past and maybe didn't get involved. And then you had Fukushima and they, they thank their lucky stars that they hadn't gotten involved. Um, but yeah, you would think there would be some that would say, hey, 
this looks like a very interesting area. Now, I have done a number of investor roadshows uh, for Yellowcake, and I say the investment community in general is very interested in uranium. And there's a lot of capital kind of at the starting gate, but they're saying 232. Let's see what the outcome is. When does the market move? How strongly does it move up? And I think it's, it's but, kind but of- But if that's the everybody. bottleneck, Dustin, but if that's the bottleneck, if 232 is the bottleneck, all they're saying is timing. We're, all we're talking about is timing here. But they, they have to do some groundwork on basic due diligence on mining companies, right? There are going to be some good ones and some bad ones, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I would like to say, yes, I've heard that there are several, you know, mid-tier mining companies, high credibility, mm. availability of capital that are doing that. I've not heard of a one. You know, I think, again, nuclear, depending on which media you follow is either a strong story or it's going in you know down as fast as yeah. you, know, you can you know so i think that's part of the problem it, it's a it's a a strange commodity like you say the most regulated commodity in the world the mine that's proposed for spain i understand they have over 120 permits and licenses yeah. Yeah. So it, it's not a gravel pit. It's not iron ore. It's yeah. just, it, it's really, really challenging. So, And I'm not, and you know, maybe it's a discussion for another day in terms of what, what is the logic that's going on there? Because that's, that's an excessive amount of permits by any, any standard. And I think it's because it's uranium, nothing it's else. Radiation, it's uranium. It's, you know, not good no matter what. And so everybody in the certainly the government side, they want to make sure, you know, be it local government, state government, federal governments, it, it's the laundry list is almost endless. Yeah, your, your backside is covered. Uh, yeah. yeah, have the uranium in their blood. The one company that I worked for previously mm. was really set up to when the, when the stars aligned, really move forward quickly. The mine in Namibia was put together in a little over a year, and you just—that—that's a unique situation. But but the thing—the thing that's changed there, obviously, Fukushima happened, and you, again, you can you can—I've had all sorts of numbers thrown at me with that. But I think with Paladin, it was it was a massive marketing exercise. But the marketing exercise was with to utilities to get them to see that you're a good company, you deliver what you say, you deliver on time. It would be there because the biggest crime in the utility space is not ordering and buying product to fill these these large reactors. Okay, so but is that the only difference? The fact that this black swan event, Fukushima, and I, and I get and I get Chernobyl and Three Mile Island before that, and you know all the safety numbers around that. But is that the only difference between when you were going around the world talking about Paladin and today? You know what? What do companies need to do to get you know people to you know be positive? Well, I think you know obviously I lived through Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and all of that. Um, I think what was unique about Fukushima was the Japanese were viewed as a gold standard. They were, if you want to name a country, mm. at fifty-four reactors and. 
for that event to happen, which uh, again, took everybody by surprise. And then the aftermath was the shutdown of that entire uh, industry sector. And the length of time, like Gitzel and Cameco said, nobody thought we'd be eight years later and they have nine operating reactors. It's been such a slow. So then you had Germany immediately react. Um, you had some of the, you know, Taiwan, mm. we want to get out of this business because it's unsafe. I think the fact that the tsunami created a, a, a situation no one had anticipated, you know, cut off fuel to the diesel generator, mm. all this, you know, we go into the ins and outs of Fukushima. Yeah. That's started everybody stepping back. So, you know, you're basically asking in the absence of Fukushima, you know, well, the industry would be have been kind of, I think, continued to grow. There would have been it would have been more orderly in my mind. Right. You've now lost that orderly progression throughout the fuel cycle. It's not just uranium, but let's just look at uranium. Mm. So low price has caused a lot of capital destruction. Let's put it that way. And a lot of kind of, I think, lack of interest. But do you think think it's also created new technologies? You know, people are talking about new technologies within the space, not just the SMR, the the, the small reactors, but the the technology, so the reactors will last 60, 80 years now, not 40 years, right? So that kind of... Uh, view to safety has, has, has been enhanced. And then you've got people like, like I mentioned previously, Bill Gates, you know, espousing the virtues. And um, I think even one of Mike Alkin's uh, friends, um, uh, the, uh, Elon Musk, um, would, <laughs> that's a private joke, um, you, yeah. know, we're, you know, are, are, are talking about the virtues of, you know, carbon neutral nuclear baseload power. You know, it it, it makes sense. The, the smart guys are saying it makes sense, but you've got this nagging doubt, this historic, slightly aging view of the industry, which you guys are trying to overcome. And so it's not just 232 and what it's doing for utilities, but it's that public perception for politicians like the Germans who are reviewing their uh, nuclear stance, as the French have done in terms of delaying it. Um, but, you know, does the industry need to work harder at the, the, the publicity side of things? I mean, how, how do they get people over as, that hump? As, as I mentioned, I've been in this business since the first Arab oil embargo a long time. Yeah. And because I think the industry was created by highly specialized engineers and utilities the communication to the general public has not been a strong let me put it that way Mm. and you know just leave us alone we know how to do that which was when i got in this business around 19 before 1980 the forecast for the united states was to have a thousand reactors i've got that forecast from the Atomic Energy Commission, we got to 10% of that. Okay, but that was the thought. This was going to be, you know, too cheap the meter. It's complicated. Unfortunately, it came out of the weapons side. And so there was always that uncertainty, I guess, or, or concern. And so then these events, accidents, 
have just added to that. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, going forward, that's why when you look at the forecast of installed nuclear capacity, it isn't a negative number. It's like one to two percent growth. And thank goodness the Chinese, you know, keep in mind at the time of Fukushima, they had 13 reactors operating. They have 45. Yeah. So this is a program that is on the fast track. Yeah. And it's happening elsewhere, but not in the traditional markets. Mm. Just in terms of getting back to, you know, for our retail high net worth and family office investors, okay? Let's let's make let's make this understandable. Uh, for them, so there's a it's a very complicated arena. It's a very emotional uh, arena in which people are operating. You've got the fundamentals of mining, which you need to understand. You've got this uranium slash nuclear relationship going on, and um, it's it's going through a, a dip a dip in the cycle here. But if you were saying to me that large companies are thinking twice about buying up um, equity, you know, other, other public companies, smaller public companies, uh, not just the BHPs, but anyone. You say you haven't heard of anyone thinking of doing this. You know, why on earth would a retail investor, you know, buy into these shares at the moment? Because there's, there's a lot of noise. And I, I look back at videos from two years, 18 months, a year ago, and people are saying the same things then as they are now. So if I had 18 months ago invested in cannabis, let's say, and was now, I've reaped, reaped my rewards from that decision, and I was looking to invest in something, why do you think uranium is gonna take off, and when? Well, I think, you know, let me, let me reference one of the larger consulting companies in this industry, uh, UX out of Atlanta. Yep. They see this, this, this demand is kind of behind the dike. In other words, in the absence, let's pick on 232, the utilities would have already been out in the term market signing long-term contracts, some of which would be with these smaller, newer um, proposed producers. Now, what happens there is you get smaller volumes. In other words, you get a 200,000 pound a year contract instead of 500 because you have to prove that you're going to be able to de to deliver. Yeah. And so the utilities, you know, what they need is yellow cake in the can. They don't care what your share price is or anything else. They've got to have fuel. Yeah. So I think yeah. what we're seeing is, as you say, how do these guys survive? How do they hold their breath? Some were on the drip. They're going to raise a little bit of capital. But then I think that, you know, any day we could have a 232 decision and the utilities, that was my point about talking to the fuel managers. I want to get this behind me because I need to cover my needs post 2020. In other words, it's not tomorrow I need to buy 100,000. They couldn't care less about that. Right. It's I need to cover 5 million pounds a year yeah. starting early 2020s. So what I think is going to happen, actually, I think the situation is more attractive because you don't have 500 companies saying, oh, I can do this. And I think the investor community has learned lessons. They've done their due diligence and no longer are they going, gee, who in the 500 yeah. you know, are likely? You can whittle it down fairly quickly 
And it has to do with status of the project, location, management. I think some of the companies that have brought in non-uranium people have found out that because it's such a different commodity, mm. that's another thing is availability of skilled uh, professionals, management, and even at the, the mill site, let's put it at kind of the operating site, there's a real lack. Yeah. And so you really I think you have to step back and say, well, okay, let me look at this universe and I can get rid of, now, rising tide will lift all boats. I think if we start to see a $50 price, yeah. then a geology, uh, well, but, a geology roll-off, yeah. I think it makes money. But in general, you've got to look at, you know, during the last uplift, it was all Kazakhstan, went from 10, under 10 million pounds to over 50, because they had all these projects that the Soviet system had defined and were kind of ready to go. And the only other one was Paladin. Yeah. I mean, really, when you look at it, small ISR mines in Wyoming took five, six years because of permitting, because, and a key factor is term contracts. Just as a, another thing to look at, the Kazakhs transact at the spot price. That's their official transfer price. But in the West, there's never been a uranium project built based on the spot market. It's always been it's always based term contract. And I hear you 100%. I'm going to make you call the timing on this. When's it going to get over 50? Oh, I, I've given up forecasting prices a long time ago. <laughs> I'm one of the, it should be higher at the end of the year. Oh, you're good. It, you're and, good. <laughs> yeah, I should point out there's a big gap between kind of 25 and 50, Huge. which is really the incentive price. Yeah. I think, you know, we could see a strong move and then, you know, depends on who's able to get into business. And so it's going to be an interesting market over the next, you know, probably several years. OK, well, like, Dustin, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. Lovely to talk to you as always. And uh, we'll speak to you again real soon. We'll probably talk right after 2.32. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, if I can, if I can get you. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you want to see more insightful, in-depth, honest and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching and we look forward to seeing you again soon.